O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and we ask you to open our ears, open our minds and our eyes, that we would see the truth and that we would obey it. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. Before I get into my text, I wanted to apologize to little Natalie. I spilled coffee all over her before the service, and now we both have to go through the service with coffee on us. You know, of all the times not to be in a building that has those heaters that no one ever uses, those blow dryers in the bathrooms, <laughs> I would have really liked to use one today. We are in chapter 3, and we've gone through chapters 1 and 2 over a long period of time, but I want to remind you a little bit about what's gone on, because in a sense, Paul appears to be starting over again at chapter 3, and so we have to ask why. Why is he choosing to start start over again? And so just to give you a very brief summary, in chapter 1, he first defends his apostleship, And he does that throughout chapter 1. And then he defends the gospel itself, as well as his apostleship in chapter 2. And now, and he has been reminding them of this because of what they've been doing, what they've been forgetting. So he wants to remind himself and he wants to remind them what's been going on in recent years. And so it's not been probably more than a year and a half to two years since he'd been in Galatia with them. He'd seen so many people converted to Christ. And here he's having to write this fairly harsh letter to them about the error that they're entering into. And in our text today, he points them to Scripture. He really hadn't pointed them to Scripture yet. And so here he points them to Abraham, to a very critical piece of Scripture that we'll cover uh, later. But I want to first address three things in in verse 1 that I find very interesting. Uh, The first thing is this whole starting over afresh Uh, he's upset all over again. He's shocked at their behavior all over again. I believe at this point he's paused probably in writing his letter. He's gotten out the basics of justifying himself as an apostle and the basics of having confronted them in their error, and now he's rethinking, where am I going to go next? And he goes right to what it is that they're doing that is foolishness. And so he tells them, you are foolish. So, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's as if emotion just bursts out of him. He can't contain it. He hadn't called them foolish until now, but now he does. The first thing I want to cover, though, is this. Who has bewitched you that you should not? And then what's the next word? That you should not. When it comes to truth, we often think of believe the truth, don't we? For us, it's an intellectual thing. But for Paul, it wasn't that. It was an obedience thing. And so we too often forget that our beliefs should be manifested in our actions. And so that is what he's getting at. He's getting at the fact that they are not obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what I think we'll have to emphasize also. Error can come in via the heart or via the mind. A while ago, I preached on Philippians, but let me turn to 4, 6, and 7 and read this. 
Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So they are unguarded. That's why they're letting error in. And so they're not in the peace of God in Galatia right now. That's why their hearts and their minds are vulnerable to error. And let me also read to you from James. I'm going to read to you from James 1, starting at verse 12. James 1, starting at verse 12, we read this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has approved, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and, come down, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. I want to take you back to verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away. Drawn away. So I want you to think about that. What are you being drawn away from when you are giving in to temptation? The tempter himself is drawing you away. Let me give you a picture that is unforgettable. Friday at work, I received an email on my phone, and it was from a fellow that works at UP, and he was reporting that a child had, there had been an attempted enticement of a child down in the Ralston School District. At 8 a.m., a child, a nine-year-old girl, was walking to school, and a man in a white van pulled up next to her and attempted to entice her into the van. He had gotten out, and he was talking with her, trying to get her into the van. And she ran away to a house, and so she escaped. But that's what I want you to imagine when you read about being enticed, being drawn away. What are you being drawn away from? The safety of God. You're being drawn away from the path that you're supposed to be on to a path that you're not supposed to be on. That's what giving into temptation is all about, and that's what he is rebuking the Galatians for. They have started down that path. They were not living in the peace of God. Therefore, their hearts and minds were not guarded. Therefore, they were drawn away into this temptation, and that's what we'll get into more uh, details on. But I just wanted you to cover the basics of, of where it is that we are in our talking about this. But I want to ask about one other thing in this first verse that is very puzzling to me. There are two puzzles that I'm going to address here in verse 1. The first is this. Oh, I'm in James. The first is, oh, foolish Galatians. Now, I, I've read the Bible a lot, and I can remember reading this and thinking, now, wait a shake. Jesus told us not to call anybody fools, didn't he? And so then I did. I looked it up. Matthew 5.22. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So, I mean, this is serious business, calling someone a fool. So let's examine whether Paul is calling them fools. What does he say? Oh, foolish Galatians. Did he call them a fool? No. He implied it because fools behave foolishly, right? But we also know that non-fools can behave foolishly. So let's give pa Paul a pass on this one. He didn't violate what uh, uh, Jesus had said. But then he refers to people as fools in Romans one twenty-two, Professing to be wise, they became fools. But again, look at the technicality of it. Did he call them fools? He did refer to them as fools. So let's again give Paul a pass. He's not guilty of violating what, what uh, Jesus has told them not to do. But someone else calls people fools. And we need to go examine that portion of Scripture. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and I'll start reading at verse 16. This is Jesus speaking. 
Woe to you blind guides who say whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind for which is greater the gold for the temple or the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind for which is greater the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Oh, I can't escape that one. He called them fools. And this is Jesus himself. So now we've got a conundrum to resolve. Jesus told us not to call anyone fools in Matthew 5, but now here in Matthew 23, he's calling people fools. So how do we resolve it? Well, let me share with you a secret. It's called context. Let's go to Matthew 5. This is the thing that I've been trying to resolve. This is the thing I've been trying to exonerate Paul from breaking. So what is Jesus talking about in Matthew 5? Let's start reading at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So what is the context in which Jesus told them this? Murder in their heart, seeking someone's harm without a cause. And yet Jesus did not have murder in his heart, and he had sufficient cause. And so you have to go with the context. You can't just treat the Bible like it's a bunch of little buzzwords that you are allowed to say or not say, or landmines that you're going to step on and blow your legs off. The word of God is meant to be used. It is a tool. And so use it like a tool. Understand it as a tool. As you use it, you will become more skilled in the use of it. Now, I want to cover one more thing before we leave this topic, though. This, Jesus is talking about the human heart. He's talking about hatred, right? So that's the context. So the, the, the obvious uh, illustration is that Paul is certainly not hating on the Galatians. He loves the Galatians. He wants to see them return to a proper understanding of the truth and a proper obedience to the truth. And this type of misapplication of scripture, I think, is quite common. We find it easy to judge people, especially other people, not ourselves, in this harsh manner. And let me give you an illustration that I think might apply. It doesn't necessarily, but it just came to mind as I was reading this book. A few years ago, I read a book called A Table in the Presence. Has anyone read that? It was written by an army chaplain about his experience in Iraq. But uh, it's a chaplain, and they are in Kuwait, and they're there for months preparing for the deployment into Iraq. And so he gets to know all these guys that he's going to be ministering to. And here they are in a peaceful setting in Kuwait. And during this time, of course, tensions are elevating, elevating, elevating. They know they're going to go, but of course the average troops can't be told when they're going to go or else someone might learn of it. So they're just there and, and to blow off steam at the very end before when the high, high muckety mucks know that they're about to go, they declare there to be this entertainment night. Now in the military, of course, you always obey your superior officers. You always treat them with respect. I mean, the whole military structure is based on uh, obedience, but on the night when they have this blowing off steam thing. Everybody is fair game. And so you have a lot of the soldiers that have become masters at mimicking their superiors. And so they put on a show. So they get a big flatbed trailer out there and then they start bringing all these guys on to uh, mock their superiors mostly. And everybody just cracks up. It's all a great stress reliever. Now, one of these men, though, as I'm reading this story, one of these men, and I think it's typical on boats, too, one of these men dressed up as a woman in order to kind of pretend certain things. And as I read that, I thought, man isn't supposed to dress like a woman. The Bible says that. It says, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. But does it apply in this context? That's what I ask you to consider in your heart. Is this what God had in mind when he put that in his Bible about soldiers about to go into battle and doing this, this mockery of things? I don't think so. What he's talking about in his word is exactly what we see in our culture. 
women adopting masculine characteristics in order to succeed in life and compete with men. That's what's being spoken of. And men embracing their feminine side to the nth degree to where they become women in public. They start putting on women's clothes and they go through operations to become women. This is what God is talking about. It's not about this soldier who dresses up for a day in order to present this this skit, this comedy skit to his fellow soldiers. So again, beware of the landmines. You make them. We make them. They're not really in God's word. God's word is a tool. It is not really a landmine that's going to explode in your face or anybody anybody else's. But now, I told you there are two puzzles. There's one more. Let me again read verse, uh, verse 1 in Galatians 3.1. Galatians 3.1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Now, this is being written, this letter is being written probably close to 20 years after Christ's death, right around 20 years after Christ's death, most likely, maybe even a little bit more. Most of these people Paul is writing to were not present in Jerusalem at the crucifixion of Christ. So what exactly does he mean? And look how he stresses it. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I mean, he couldn't make it any clearer, could he? But you have to, again, understand what he's saying before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. This word, portrayed, can also be read as painted. Christ was clearly painted as crucified. Paul had been with these Galatians. He saw the Holy Spirit come into their midst. He saw them saved. So he knows that the message of the cross was very clear in their minds. When we were on our way to uh, Atlanta seven or eight years ago, we stopped in Cape Girardeau, and along the Mississippi there, they have a huge cement breakwater, and it's very high, and there were murals painted all along it, like 200 feet at least, and there were these huge murals of life on the Mississippi, typically like back in the 1800s. And that is what Paul has in mind here. Christ was portrayed as crucified so vividly through the preaching through the words, through their imaginations even, that he knows they were transformed by this. And so he's wanting to draw that back into their minds afresh. There's a big mural downtown. I don't know if you know this, but on 13th Street, a couple years ago, I was heading north on 13th from downtown, and there's a huge building with a mural on it. It's probably 60 feet tall. And these are larger than life, and they're meant to shock you. They're meant to, to be so vivid that it makes you wonder at them. And that's what Paul is talking about. There was a famous uh, pre-Nicene father uh, preacher. I think they called him the silver-tongued preacher. His name was Chrysostom. And he said this about this text. He does not say was crucified, but was painted crucified, showing that by the eyes of faith they beheld more distinctly than some who were present and saw the crucifixion. Again, the Bible is filled with puzzling things that we really should reflect on and think through. And they do have meaning. They're meant to shake us out of our blasé attitude towards reading. They're meant to awaken our imaginations, have us to use them to better understand them. God made us. He knows us. He wants to use the tools he's placed in us to bring this vividly into our minds. It's like watching a movie after reading a book. Too often we're disappointed. The book was just so imaginative and creative and, and, and detailed and yet we watch the movie, and it's like, oh, it hardly seems like the same thing most of the time. Now, I want to point out, that's the end of my puzzles for verse 1. I don't, have, I don't think I have any more puzzles throughout the text, so I apologize for the puzzle lovers. But uh, there is a commonality, though, that I wanted to point out. Verse 2 and verse 5 both use this phrase verbatim. By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. In verse 2 it reads, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then he uses that identical phrase in verse 5. Paul asks, of course, a rhetorical question. He knows the answer to this. Many of these people hadn't even known the law before they were saved. And here they are adopting 
and, and an obedience to the law for the purpose of being saved so quickly after having been saved. So what is this law to do? Is it to keep them saved? Is it to make them more saved? He's puzzled, and he's sharing that puzzling question with them. Why are you doing this? It makes no sense to me. So he's just being very honest. Many of these Galatians had been Gentiles. Some were Jews, no doubt, because that's how they get their foothold. They're getting the Jews, essentially, to want to bring this law back in and, and employ it against the Gentiles. But again, how could the law have saved them? They didn't even know about the law when they had been saved like a year and a half to two years earlier. And in verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? The law in Paul's day and the law in our day. And when I say law, you know what I mean. It's works. It's what we do. This law only enslaves you and steals away your joy. The law is there to condemn. Christ set you free from condemnation. He took upon himself the punishment for having broken the law. And so we cannot benefit by law-keeping in order to appease God in any way. All of our law-keeping is done in obedience to God. It's done in thanks to God. It's done in love of God. All of our law-keeping has absolutely nothing to do with earning anything with God. No privileges, no nothing. You get nothing for keeping the law. What you get is fulfillment from in, within you, fulfillment that you are doing what God wants you to do. That's why we now keep the law, because we love God, and God's law is perfect. God gave us his law as a blessing in our society to open up our eyes to how far gone we were and are in sin. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, this is like a tongue twister, but I want to read it to you. But in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, we read this. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. How many times can you get themselves into a verse? I believe it's in here six times. But... Uh, when you really puzzle it out, it makes perfect sense, and it's something that we all do. We just do this naturally. We're always comparing ourselves to one another. I'm better than him. I'm better than her. In whatever, whatever thing you're looking at, I mean, it's this, that, and the other. We, we slice and dice ourselves constantly. And yet, that type of mentality is not going to lead you to joyful living. That doesn't get you there. We fall so far short of impressing God by who we are and what we do that it's silly to even think that way. You cannot impress God. You cannot. Now, as you follow God and as the grace of God flows through you to minister in those around you, people might commend you. That's a nice thing you did. And it's sometimes perhaps difficult to learn how to accept that type of praise because you think, well, that's going to just inflate my head. You know, my wife tells me my head, you know, can grow so big to not fit through that door very, very quickly. And it's true. I mean, she knows me. She knows it's true. So I don't really accept praise easily in that regard. It, 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 can't, it can so easily cause my head to swell that I've got to... In, intentionally, but then you can't go to the other street. Oh, no, no, you can't throw it all away. People are truly appreciative, and, and you appreciate that. But you must point to God. You must say, any good that I am or any good that I do is only really because of Christ. I know where I would be apart from Christ, and I would certainly not be here. I, I wouldn't be a believer. I probably wouldn't be alive. But uh, God puts us into positions of usefulness and he wants us to appreciate one another. And really, when it comes down to it, we are appreciating the Christ in one another, the work of Christ in our hearts. That's what we're showing appreciation for. Because all of what's natural to us is ugly. It's not worthy of praise. Verse 4 says, Have you suffered so many things in vain? And so he knows what they've been through. 
Now, some commentators try to say that, well, there's really no reported instances of persecution of the Galatians, and so therefore he's probably only talking about suffering in the sense of accomplishment or done this or done that. And I think, oh, that's so silly. That's so short-sighted. I mean, look at 2 Corinthians 11.22. This is where uh, Paul is talking to them. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Now, most of that is not in the Bible. We have stories in Acts of his persecution, but not this many. And so it's downplayed. Scripture downplays the sufferings of Paul. Paul himself here had to point it out to us as an aside, as he's pretending to be a fool in order to impress these Corinthians, who are only elevating fools, apparently, in their midst. It's only if you're a fool that they honor you and that they reward you. And so the Jews in Galatia were filled with envy. Acts 13.45 says the Jews were filled with envy and they opposed. They even went from city to city to chase the apostles, to chase the believers, to hunt them down. And so I have no doubt that the Galatians were persecuted by the, the Jews of that area. They did not like what was going on. And so they wanted to undo it. They wanted to make them pay. Now let's turn to verse 5. Again, I mentioned earlier, this was the second instance of the use of that, of that uh, phrase. And let me repeat that phrase. By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Works of the law or hearing of faith. Last week I talked about affirmations and denials, and we have the same thing here. I'll get to that in a bit, but I first wanted to talk to you about this works of the law, hearing of faith. That's in the phrase, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Now, I made the mistake of going to a uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon sermon to see if I could see him use hearing of faith in context to where I could understand it. And all I was done was shamed into, into thinking, how can I possibly preach like this guy? Uh, I, his sermons are, are just incredible. Uh, you, pretty much as you read them, you'll always feel like you're being elevated to, to the throne of God. Uh, but so I made the mistake of doing that this very morning. So after, as I did that, I thought, oh, this was foolish of me to read a Spurgeon sermon on Sunday morning. Uh, but what does it mean then when he contrasts works of the law, hearing of faith? What I was trying to get at was this, this morning. And I think I have the answer, but it wasn't from Spurgeon's sermon. It was just through reflection on this and other texts. Works of the law is obvious. That's us. That's us trying to do things to earn God's favor. But what is the hearing of faith? Is it God hearing or is it us? Because Jesus, in his ministry as he went around, he used the phrase, I have not heard of such faith or I have not seen demonstrated such faith. So you see Jesus as God hearing faith. But I don't believe that's what's intended here. Both are activities of us. They are man activities. Works of the law, hearing of faith. So, he says, you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith. And then later, uh, that was in verse 2, and then in verse 5 here, he worked miracles among you by the hearing of faith. Law-keeping had long since failed in the land of Israel to do anything miraculous. Law-keeping is what led them to the silent years where God had abandoned them, where they had no prophets coming to the Jewish communities, no prophets performing miracles. Why? Faith had waned. And let's, let's talk about that. Let's go to Mark 6. Well, I'll go there. You don't have to go there if you want to. But in Mark 6, we read this. I'll start at verse 1. Then he went out from there, of course referring to Jesus, and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? 
And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, in his own home. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the village, villages in a circuit teaching. I want to point you to verse 5 where it says, Now he could do no mighty work there. He could do no mighty work there. Does this mean that he could not do it? Jesus, the omnipotent one, could not do something. That's what I ask you. Think about it. While I turn to Matthew 13 to a parallel passage. Matthew 13, 58, I'll start reading. And it's the same context. His sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So in Matthew, you see that Jesus chose not to do mighty works there because of their unbelief. Whereas in Mark, the could not, what did that relate to? It related to him working miracles only in the context of hearing faith. And they didn't have it, and he would not work miracles for them. In the presence of faith, Christ would work miracles. In the presence of no faith, he would not work miracles. The text even says he could not work miracles. But the could is based on his own volition. He was requiring faith of his hearers before he would work the miracles. And if it wasn't there, he wouldn't do it. He wasn't going to perform for them. Isn't that what we see in our own day? I love the story of the, of the teacher that's standing there in the, in the lecture hall, and they're at war, and, and you know, we're like over in Iraq, and the teacher is, say, is talking about how you know, all these Christians say that God is with our troops over in Iraq, blah, blah, blah. And then he's taunting God. You know, if, well, if God's here, he should come down here and strike me dead. And so some ex-soldier gets out of his seat, goes down there and punches the man, knocks him out. <laughs> God is busy in Iraq. He sent me to deal with you. But uh, see, that's so much what man hungers for, right? We hunger for this type of, ah. But God, God is more powerful than that. God just lets them go, lets them go. They are on that wide path leading to destruction. And he is not going to perform miracles for them. You know why? Because even if they participated in this, even if they saw the miracles, they would not believe because they do not have faith. They refuse to hear. They would stop up their ears. They would make up stories, but they would not believe. They would not submit. The question I have for us is this. Hearing faith. Hearing faith. Isn't it a weird way of describing it? I mean, I I just think it's odd. It, It falls oddly on the ears. But you know why, though? Why does God phrase it like that? Because it's entirely passive. That is the most passive thing we can do and yet be engaged. You're all hearing, right? Hearing. It is so passive for us. And yet God discriminates between the hearers. There are those that hear me in faith and there are those that hear me in lack of faith. Can I tell the difference? Can you tell the difference? God does. God will. Does God hear your faith? How can he hear your faith? What would be an example of him hearing your faith? Do you live by faith or not? In many ways, we live in a time, in a culture, in which faith is irrelevant. We, even us Christians, we do not live with the relevance of faith. But yet, time to time, God tests us. God sends challenges into our life. 
will you, will you demonstrate faith such that I can hear you? See, we're both hearing. We're hearing and God is hearing. It's about this connection that we have with God, this intimacy that we have with God through this. Let me read verses 5 and 6. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So this is the first quote that we have from the Old Testament. And this is from Genesis 15, verse 6. Their experience and Abraham's experience is the same as our experience. For Abraham, God came to him and gave him faith. For us, God comes to us and gives us faith. For the Galatians, God came to them and gave them faith. That had to precede the works that come from them. It is faith that saves, not works. It is faith that saves these Galatians. It's faith faith that saves us. Let me read verse 7. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. This gets to that affirmation and denial. In verse 6, we had an affirmation. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And without righteousness, we will not see God. Instead, we have the condemnation of God resting upon us. So that we know we need to be righteous to go to heaven. We know we need to be righteous to be in God's presence. Verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. So there was the affirmation that the faithful will see God, the faithful will be righteous, and now there is the denial that any who lack faith will see God. They will not. The unfaithful, the faithless, will not be with God. They are not with God here. They will not be with God in heaven. So there's the affirmation and the denial. All of our reality comes down to entering into heaven and hell when we leave this earth. It's one of the two. There is no middle ground, as much as we might wish it so, as much as the Roman Catholics might believe that it is so. It is not so. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. So you will be going to heaven or hell, one of the two, only those two paths. You require faith. That is your admission into heaven. You lack it, you go to hell. So now why do I say it this bluntly? Because all of society argues against that. All of society tries to appeal to your sentiments. They want to appeal to your heart and leave your head and God's word out of it. But it's only God's heart that matters in this. And so if you feel you lack faith, you go to God. You seek faith. Remember what would happen when Jesus went to people and and they wanted a miracle. And he, and he tests them, and they say, I don't have faith. I have faith. Help my unbelief. I, I believe. Help my unbelief. So they're admitting, I'm so confused. I'm so in need. And what does God do? God is the great need fulfiller. When you go to him with nothing in your hands, he will leave. He'll give you something to leave with. But only when you go to him with nothing in your hands. Like I said, if you want to impress God, he will scoff at you. And he deserves to scoff at you. You have nothing he needs. You have nothing he wants. Do not think that your conduct in any way causes God to love you more or less. If you've had the worst week on earth as a Christian, if you've sinned more this week than you had in years, God loves you no less. As a matter of fact, he would demonstrate his love for you more likely in the coming days by coming down on you. And that should be your prayer. That should be your plea to the elders. Pray that God would rebuke me in the week ahead. Pray that he would punish me. That's what we should be praying for because that then would lead to us having more faith. He will love us, hug us, embrace us, draw us close to himself. But not when we're seeking our pleasures in sin, of course. And that's why smack, he'll smack our hands. Get away from that cookie jar. That's not yours. Let the unbelievers go for that cookie jar. Now let me read Genesis uh, 12, 1 to 3, because this is just, I, 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 honestly, Genesis 
12, 1 to 3 are probably three of the most important verses in the whole Bible for us Christians. And let me read it to you. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. That's about as far as the Jews cared to go. But there's more. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because see, when did Moses come along? Hundreds of years after this. But here we have God's promise to Abraham that he will be with him, but he will make Abraham a tool to transform the world into a place that loves the Lord. The problem is that it's just so little, just those few verses, few little words, but they're in this critical position. And so we can't allow their littleness to lose sight of their impact, their import. When I was in the military, I went to school for a piece of equipment. Three of us went from my radar group. We went out to the desert. Actually, that's where I came to the Lord, out in the desert during that period of 10 weeks where I was taking these classes. But uh, when I came back, because I had eked out ahead of one of my classmates, a higher grade, I got, I got the duty. And so they moved me from radar repairman to the uh, repairman of this, uh, this little site here. So anyway, I'm, I'm now the, the IFF guy, the uh, uh, identification friend or foe guy. I don't know if you know this, but, but every military on earth wants to shoot down every plane that passes over their country. Uh, any, anybody that has an Air Force wants to shoot things down. Our military wants desperately to shoot all the planes down that pass over this country. So if you're not squawking a friendly frequency, you're going to get shot down, or at least they're going to come up and do some buzz-bys and make you go down. So I worked on the equipment that did this, this identification friend or foe. So I had this box that had about a dozen cards in it, and it was tied into the radar, and it was using the radar uh, uh, apparatus in order to send this signal up to ping all the planes that are attempting to enter airspace and require that they then send a friendly frequency down to me. Well, I went through the training, and it's all very confusing, and you've got all these cards, and you've got switches, and I have horrible note-taking abilities anyway. So I'm back there, and, and I'm attempting to work on this. And, well, one of the things you're supposed to do is you're supposed to perform, uh, like, quarterly maintenance on it. So you take out all the cards, and you dust them off, and you stick them back in. So I did that. But then a guy the next day comes over and he says, you're not squawking. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? I mean, I had no idea what, who this guy was. He saw in an instant that I was an idiot. <laughs> he went and got the guy that had done it before me. And that guy came out there with his little book, with his little, with his little notebook, and, and flipped a switch. Now we're squawking. Now this, now this fellow's happy. And I'm no less the idiot. I just didn't even realize the significance of that switch setting. But in my pulling them out and doing I'm like, why did they make it a switch anyway, right? I mean, if we're going to shoot anybody down, I mean, shouldn't we always be sending that frequency up? But apparently, it's an option. And I had turned it off without knowing, and, and then I was an idiot. I couldn't turn it back on. But, but here, that, that's what this text is. See, it's just buried in the middle of nowhere. Yet it's so important. It's like that little switch. It was so important. It was critical to the whole function of the device I was supposed to be working on, but I didn't know. And that's what the Jews, they, they, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. They didn't know. They didn't see the significance of this. And sometimes we don't. So the order of events in the life of Abraham are extremely important. I'm going to stay here at... Uh, chapter 12, and read three things and show you with verse 1, 2, and 3 what they mean. Now the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land where I will show you. So first, God came to Abraham. Abraham had no idea God existed. God came to him, revealed himself. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. Second one, God promises to make Abraham great. Three, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So now Abraham is this vessel through which God is going to bless all of mankind, all the families of the earth. Now let's move ahead to chapter 15, verse 6. It's what I'd read earlier. It's in our text. 
Verse 6, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So God has come to him. God has made him two promises, nothing else yet. And now we see, and Abram believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him as, as righteousness. So Abraham believed, God credits him with righteousness. And we know that belief comes through faith. We know that faith comes as a gift from the Lord. Now that's up to five points. And now I want the next point is this. Galatians, or Genesis 17:10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. So then circumcision is introduced. You know how long this is after he's been credited with righteousness? It's at least 14 years. At least 14 years. It's been a long time. It's been a long time God ha- since God has saved Abraham to where he institutes the covenant. And the the symbol of the covenant was circumcision. The symbol of the modern covenant with us is baptism. I'm pointing this out because it's important. This is why Paul does not stop at Moses when he's arguing with these Judaizers. He goes straight to Abraham. He says, you Jews are all caught up with Moses and the Mosaic law. But you must go back to Abraham to understand at all what's been going on in the last 20 years. Why Jesus came to the earth? Whose promise was he fulfilling? It wasn't in fulfillment of the Mosaic law explicitly. It was in fulfillment of the promise that had been made to Abraham. God saved Abraham through faith. Right? And yet he wasn't circumcised until after he'd been saved. So it's obvious then that circumcision and, and being saved are disconnected from one another. They're not interdependent. In the same way, baptism, not interdependent. Our salvation is not predicated on baptism. Our baptism is not predicated on salvation. Although with people that convert, it is, right? People convert and then they're baptized. But in what I just read in, in Genesis 17... God institutes circumcision with Abraham. How old is Abraham when he's circumcised? Does anybody know off the top of their head? 99. His son Ishmael is 13. How old is Isaac when he's circumcised? Eight days. Do you see the significance of what I'm saying? God instituted circumcision at the point that he had told him Isaac would be born because he wanted Isaac born into the covenant and circumcised on the eighth day. He wanted to show that the promise is to not only Abraham, but to his children, and that the covenant is taking immediate effect through his children passively. Just like I talked about earlier, hearing faith is a passive activity. Being baptized or being circumcised is a passive activity. You are the one that is passive. It is God and the Holy Spirit that are acting upon you. But even Moses did not circumcise his children. Do you remember that? God came to him at 80 years old and his sons had not been circumcised. And it would appear from the text that they had not been circumcised because his wife would not let him circumcise those boys because she's the one that circumcised the boys. Because the angel of the Lord was going to execute Moses. I mean, this is, I didn't mean to bring this puzzle up, but that's another one of those puzzles. But anyway, it's where God himself has told Moses to go, and then the angel of the Lord is going to execute him while he's on his way. But it's because his sons weren't circumcised, and, and his wife then circumcises the boys, obviously because she had been the one that was fighting against Moses. But what's interesting to me is this. Here you have Moses, who had not circumcised his boys. It's like he had lost faith. And so again, you have it repeated. God comes to Moses, just as he had come to Abraham. And he has to reinstitute the covenant all over again. You people may have forgotten me, God is saying, but I have not forgotten you. My promise is to Abraham. My promise is to his seed. That 12.3, 12.3b. That second portion of the third verse in chapter 12 is important. And so God is following through and acting on those promises. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And that is our last verse in Galatians. In Galatians 3, 9, 
We read that. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Abraham is the father of us all. Modern faithful are blessed just as Abraham was blessed, and just as those before Abraham were blessed. Even Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who Abraham made obeisance to, even he was blessed and became a believer in like faith, as Abraham showed. In other words, through faith, through God coming to them. Paul in Romans uh, 4.16 wrote this, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham is the father of us all, the father of all the faithful. And John Calvin made this comment concerning this text also. There is no variety of roads to righteousness. And so Abraham is called the father of all them that believe because he is a pattern adapted to all. Nay, in his person has been laid down to us the universal rule for obtaining righteousness. So I urge you to examine your life Where are you dependent on works? Believe me, you are. So many of us are. We all are in many ways. We have to be rooting works, righteousness out of our lives daily. For instance, let me give you an example. If you ever believe that you are too unholy to come to the worship on Sunday and you refuse to participate, the error is in the many days when you feel that you are so holy that you can participate. You have no choice as a child of God but to partake of that table. You partake to your justification, to your sanctification, or your condemnation. God will judge you if you're eating unworthily. But he wants you eating. You're in his covenant. If you're in his covenant, you're at his table. And you're eating. He's a bad dad in that respect. He makes you eat. So, that is an example of works righteousness. How insidious it is at getting into our minds and making us believe that we have to be acceptable before God by doing this and doing that, when in reality it is the grace of Christ in you. That's the only reason you're at this table. And if you have no grace of Christ in you, if you're an unbeliever and you're coming to this table, then you are eating and drinking condemnation to yourself. So, believers, join the church. Come to the table. God wants you to come and eat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is the solid rock upon which uh, we should live our lives. And yet, too often, we allow it to be in our heads, but not be acting it out through the actions of our lives. Lord, we want your peace that will guard our hearts and minds through the power of Christ. And so we plead for your peace that you would protect us from harm.